As we gather today, we want to pray for Ukraine. We want to pray for that situation, and we're going to do that uh, in a few moments. But if you've received our email this week, you will know that our church community here has been rocked by a very difficult uh, experience, the tragic loss of one of our young adults. If you're visiting among us, we're in a slightly different mood today. Uh, Stephen Linden was very much loved member of our worship group, of our church, growing up in the church, contributing many uh, videos to our live streams and to the, the things that we've been doing in the last couple of years. You will have seen him with his father, Chris, and sometimes with his sister, Rebecca. Stephen family have been mission partners of ours. We've supported Chris and Arda as they worked in Bible translation. And some years ago, Arda died from cancer. That's Stephen's mother and Chris's wife. And therefore, this family holds a very special place in our hearts. Stephen was uh, a very gentle, quiet, kind, funny, faithful reliable young man and his death is very sudden and uh, as yet unexplained he was in Canada and Chris and Rebecca have gone out to Canada to be with him and so we want to pray I'm going to lead us in a prayer uh, for Chris and for Rebecca and for the friends then I'm going to invite you to join with me in a prayer generally for our world. And then I'm going to invite the worship group to join me and we're going to worship together and sing some songs of this light and speak words of hope. There may be times when we don't feel able to sing because we need to weep and that's okay. And there may be there are times when other of us, others of us will just sing over each other. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray for Chris and ask that you would hold him in your arms. We pray that you would bring your comfort. We pray that you would bring your hope. We pray that you would bring your light. We pray for Rebecca too. Pray that she, she would know your unfailing, everlasting arms holding her through this grief. Be with them now in Canada, we pray. We pray for all of us affected by this death. Friends, wider family. We ask you to walk this journey with us. We ask you to hold us. We ask you to receive our questions and our cries, our tears and our anger. And we ask you to reveal again your unfailing love. 
And we pray for all the other places of darkness that are known to us. Those we know who are suffering in different ways, who are feeling lost or confused or hurt or fearful or alone, and for whom darkness is an experience, we pray for them. And we name them quietly in our hearts. And we pray, Lord Jesus, for the people of Ukraine and for the people of Russia, for soldiers, for civilians, for people who are hurting and fearful, for those who are grieving, for those who are angry, for those who are misled. Father, hear our prayer. We bring the darkness to you and ask you to show your light. We uh, decided this week that we would not do what we'd planned for this Sunday. I'm not going to look at Ezra and the fact Lamb was going to speak today, but we just felt it was right to change everything in the light of uh, Stephen's death and the way that's affected so many of us. And I want to, to bring a little bit of scripture that's uh, one of those passages that I turn to in these moments. And uh, just some, some thoughts uh, and some reflections there is, I think, and many of us will know this, and some of us won't yet know it, but there is a moment that happens to all of us at some point. For some of us, it's happened in this room already. For some of us, it's been this week. For some of us, it's yet to come. The moment is when somebody we really know well dies unexpectedly. Lots of you will know my story that I was, when I was 18, my very good friend Alistair was coming to church to see us on his motorbike when he was knocked off and killed. And I was 18, he was 18. And that's the moment when the world how we saw it is no longer the same. Two or three years later, my father died from cancer. And some of us here have been through that moment. And many of us are not yet there. And I want to try and bring some words for those of us in the moment, for those of us who've been through it, and for those of us for whom it's not yet happened. But it will, because this world is broken. It's fallen. It's damaged. But you see, before the moment, we think death doesn't happen to us. It happens to old people. And old people are people that we're never going to be. That's what, how we feel before we've had the moment. It, 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 it's, it's so out there. And I think this is a Western thing because we live in a culture where 
Death for children is very, very rare and it's hidden away from us. Where are there other communities where many don't live to be five years old? Where death is part of life and it's spoken of, but we, we, we don't live in that world. We, we talk about other things like passing over or we try and just avoid it. And I certainly thought death would never happen to me, it's for old people. And then suddenly, in a moment, the world is a different world. And after that moment, things never look the same. Because we're aware that life is fragile. And we appreciate the fragility of that life. It matters what we do with each breath and each day because we know it may not be there tomorrow. We value the time we have because we want to make it count. And you'll have seen the stories as we've all had of those who faced near-death experiences or come through that and they talk about the colours being different and the sky being different and the trees being different. And, and it is like that. And you think, I'm alive. I need to do something with that. And before that moment, we discuss suffering. It's an intellectual exercise. We like to discuss, or maybe we don't, but we're quite capable of discussing why. Why do things happen? But in the moment and afterwards, we may cry why, but we don't want an answer. Because like Job, the answers are not good enough. And so we ask the question, what now? And that seems to me to be a really, really biblical and important question. And I want to share in a few moments this scripture that's been significant to me again this week. Early uh, this morning at 8.30, Kath and I did the 8.30 live stream. And, and, and my first words, were, I knew uh, uh, early in the week that I needed to say something today. And the first two words that came to me were the words, how long, how long do we have to do this? Do we have to wait? And I reflected on that at 8.30. If you go on our... Uh, YouTube channel, you'll see that this morning. But the passage I want to bring to you this evening again uh, is one that I turn to uh, at these times. And, and um, But I'm going to play you a piece of music before that, if that's okay. Um, it's a piece of music that Deb introduced me to in a live stream a few months ago. It's a piece of music that talks about us being on the border between the kingdom of light, of heaven, of goodness, of God, and the kingdom of darkness, a broken and fallen world, a damaged world where isn't, things aren't as they should be. And it talks about us standing on that border and longing for the fullness of heaven and yet experiencing the brokenness of this world and the uneasy place 
of trying to be in both and see both and hold both in the borderlines. I'm going to play this music and then we're going to look at a bit of scripture together.
want to read with you a part of the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation. It's a series of dreams and visions that the disciple, the apostle John, has late in his life while he's in prison. Probably one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. It's a book that's caused loads of controversy, is sometimes very unhelpfully explained. But it's a beautiful book that when we get the right tools is incredibly important for every generation. It's not a book of uh, descriptions for one generation that will appear to have been irrelevant for the last 2,000 years as if all the people 400 years ago were reading Revelation and going, well, that don't make sense to me. No, it's a book for every generation because it describes the reality of these last days. And it describes them in picture language which we're going to embrace and enjoy for a few moments. And a number of times John says after this, and this is one of the keys to understanding Revelation helpfully, if we think after this he means the next bit of history, then we get all kinds of confusions which Christians have debated for the last 500 years and none of them were right. But actually what he means by after this is the next vision that I saw is the same time span, but he's looking at it from a different angle. He sees another picture of the same. After this, I looked. It's as if he tells us one picture of what he sees here and then he goes and says, after this, I saw that. After this, I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Here is the vision of eternity, of the future life that Jesus is calling us into. Where, and this is radical stuff for the people hearing this. Every nation, every language, every color, every culture, every tribe, are standing as one in unity before God's throne. This isn't a message for a particular people. This isn't a message for a certain race. This isn't a message for one part. This is a message for all. For Ukrainians and for Russians. for Europeans and for Arabs. Every tribe coming together with all the divisions and all the fears and all the uh, suspicions of one another. Gone, broken, there's one. And yet we still know who we were. And they stand before the throne and we, we we began with this last week and I had no idea that what was going to unfold in the week and we'd come back to this metaphor. But this remarkable idea that they stand in front of a lamb. And we, if we're Christianized, if we're used to the Bible, we may take this for granted in a way that we need to feel the, the power of what John's describing. It's a very strange thing. Lambs are small, bouncy, cuddly, stupid animals. They are not horses. They are not graceful beasts 
of royalty. Kings do not ride lambs. Kings do not describe themselves as lambs. But this throne is described as having the lamb before it. And we know that what this is about is that in the Old Testament, and and Revelation is always dropping hints and and Paul using the metaphors of of the Old Testament. That's the code, if you like. Um, That in the Old Testament, in order to express people's repentance and their confession of their unworthiness and their dirt. They took something which was incredibly precious and valuable financially, a lamb, because a lamb was going to grow up and either produce uh, other animals or it was going to, uh, other sheep, of course, or, or, or it was going to feed. But you sacrificed this lamb saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And we know the story perhaps of the Passover where the blood of a lamb is put on the doorpost to save people from death. And these two ideas, in fact, we were looking at this in Living the Life this week. These two ideas merge. And Jesus is our lamb because he's sacrificed on the cross, suffering as we've just sung about, we just thought about it. It is Jesus suffering in our place. And this is our God, not the warrior, not the frightening oppressor, but the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And white is a symbol of cleanliness. There's no mark, there's no dirt, there's no grubbiness to them. They have been forgiven, they have been cleansed. And they're holding palm branches perhaps as a celebration or reminder of that moment going into Jerusalem, beginning of the Holy Week where they welcome the Messiah and they cry, this is our King, Hosanna, God save us. And they're wearing white robes. It's a picture. I'm convinced that in heaven we'll be able to wear different colors because God created color. It's a picture of our status, not a literal description of our dress wear. It's a metaphor. We will be clean. And they cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the God who has saved us. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures, that's for another day's story, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped him saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. So who are these people who are worshipping like this? Who are declaring the greatness of God as we have reflected in our worship already? Who are they? Well, one of the elders asked me, that's asked John, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And John said, I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. Meaning, these are those who have come through, beyond, gone through, not avoided, but gone through immense suffering immense suffering. They have been martyred. 
or damaged or hurt by the evil one. These are people, and you think, well, how on earth are people who, they are the people who've gone through the moment. These are the people who've experienced death of loved ones, of their own, perhaps, martyrdom. These are people who ought, perhaps, to be saying, God, where are you? What have you done? But they're crying salvation, praise and honor. So why are they doing that? How is that possible? That they are the ones, the very people who've suffered. And you and I are, will be part of that crowd. For when we get to the end of the life, we, our lives, we will have been through the moment. We will have suffered. We will have been attacked spiritually or physically, or mentally. And there are many of us here already. That's our experience. And we will cry out. Salvation belongs to God. And you think, well, why? Well, it goes on. It says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is a great metaphor. If, if you wash things in blood, they don't come out white. I learned that early on. My dog's in season, I'm learning it now. <laughs> but if we allow ourselves to be immersed in the cross, if we bring all our shame and all our filth and all our regrets and all our self-loathing, and all the things we've done, and we bring him to the cross and allow Jesus to wash us with his blood. I became a Christian in a stream of the church called the Brethren, for whom this was a, phrase, a key phrase. They would often ask you, have you been washed in the blood, just as a greeting. It was very strange. It took me many years to understand what that meant. <laughs> to be clean, to be forgiven. And therefore, they're before the throne of God. Because they know cleansing and forgiveness. They know a new life. And they serve him day and night. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. And there's two things I want to draw your attention to about this. The first thing is that part of the pain of this world is when God seems on mute, when God is distant, when our prayers don't go through the ceiling, when we're not sure where God is. And this may be one of those weeks. Where are you, God? What are you doing? And we long for the time when we know God, when he is our God and we are his people and we are in his presence and there is no more doubt, there is no more questioning, but we can see face to face. And this is that moment. Day and night we're there. And all the doubts and all the questions are resolved. 
But the second thing, and this is the thing I particularly like, I love camping, but this spreading his tent over them is a really beautiful analogy. Some of you will know that at the beginning of the Old Testament, after they've come out of uh, the wilderness, after the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the Passover, the Red Sea, into the, they're wandering in the wilderness, and God leads them by day, through a, 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 a pillar of a, a cloud of smoke, as it were, and by night by a, a pillar of fire. And at the base of this column of fire or smoke or whatever is a tent. And in the tent is a little box, a big box, a box. And in the box are the Ten Commandments. That box is called the Ark of the Covenant. And lots of you will know that uh, it went missing just before Ezra. Ezra never had it and uh, Indiana Jones and all of that never found it. It doesn't exist. But this tent was the tent that was described, it had a, it had a, a word, it was described as the tabernacle. It was the place where God dwelt, and this word dwelt was only ever used to describe where God's presence was, where his presence was, where he dwelt. And he dwells in the tent, he dwells in the tabernacle. And when the, when the fire moved, the tent moved, and they moved from time, place to place in the um, in the wilderness, and then eventually David uh, helps them enter the promised land. And sorry, Joshua helps them enter the promised land. And David helps them fulfil it, and Solomon builds a temple. And this Ark of the Covenant is placed in the first temple, and there's a curtain that separates, or there's a barrier that separates you and I, ordinary people, from being in the very heart of God's presence. And in heaven. The tent is spread so that you and I are included. We're not on the outside waiting for the priest to come out. We're not on the outside in the wind and the rain, vulnerable to attack. But he spreads his tent over us, his tabernacle, his dwelling, his abiding. He puts it over us, like a, 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 a coat, if you were, and it, he puts his coat over us, and we're in, and it's safe, and it's warm, and it's a privilege, and it's where we want to be. He spreads his tent over them. You don't be on the outside. You're in, included. And then he says, they will never hunger again. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat on them, nor any scorching heat. And if we take these words literally, so well, that just applies to heat, doesn't apply to other forms of suffering. But this is not about literalism. This is about the metaphor. It is the metaphor of that wandering wilderness. Of being in a land where the streams are dry and the crops have failed and the locusts have eaten and the sun is beating down and folks are starving. It is a metaphor for a place of desolation, of destruction, of hopelessness. But he says it was over. Never again will they hunger. Never again will the sun beat down on them. Never again will all the brokenness and damage of this fallen world that has rebelled and lost the purposes God had for it. 
never again will we be in that place. For the lamb, repetition, important. The lamb at the center before the throne will be their shepherd. Now, of course, again, that's a bizarre thing because how can a lamb be a shepherd? It's not possible. But again, we know our Old Testament perhaps and we know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He fills my cup in the presence of my enemies. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with me and his rod and his staff will comfort me. Who is the shepherd? It is Jesus. What kind of shepherd is he? He's a shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's a shepherd who loves, who isn't expecting and exacting an entry standard, but a shepherd who says, I lay down my life for you because I want you to be in my tent. I want you to be here in this place of stillness. I want you to be at peace. He will lead them to springs of living water. He will enact Psalm 23 for us. This is the destiny of heaven for the multitude. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And that's the verse I always come back to. It's repeated a number of times in Revelation because it's incredibly important. And there are two aspects to it. The one aspect is that in heaven there is no more tears. And we, many of us, are weeping this week. And we grieve. And the why question, it's not going to get anywhere. But the what now question is what brings hope. That there will come a point where the 20, 30 years of difficulty and pain, the 40 or 50 years of difficulty or pain in this life have been superseded by 30 or 40 years of refreshment, of joy, of no more hunger, of living streams, of, 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 of no separation from God, of peace, of joy. And that 30 or 40 years in heaven is followed by 30 or 40 years again, followed by 30 or 40 thousand years the only way I cope with the suffering that I see is to believe in a heaven that puts it all right that lasts for eternity and sometimes in our western world in our non-suffering world in our world before the moment we want Christianity to be all about this moment and we do kind of look down on those who embrace heaven as central to their faith. I need to be looked down on. Along with the slaves who wrote such beautiful gospel songs in the turn of the centuries in America. Along with all who've suffered, who turn to this verse and say, one day God will put this right. 
one day we'll be reunited. And one day our pain and sorrow will be over. And one day, Chris and Arda and Stephen and Rebecca will be together forever. That's what I hold on to. That's what keeps me going. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4. And the second part of this wiping every tear from our eyes is the intimacy of it. And I've said on many occasions, you know, if it, 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 I've, I've, I've learned to be fairly okay with people crying. I know how to give a box of tissues. And I know how to wait. But I don't put my finger out and touch the cheek and wipe the tear because that's what I would only do for my children and my family. I don't wipe a tear away. That's intimate. That's a sign of deep, deep love. That's the Father heart of God who feels the pain of this broken world where the will of God is not being done. Where the kingdom of darkness has footholds. And he feels the tears. But one day, he will wipe them away. And we're on the border. And we long for heaven on earth. And we pray your kingdom come. And we work and we act for his kingdom. And we seek to bring his reign into the communities and the places that we're a part of and the lives that we lead. And we want to wipe every tear. But not until we get there will it be fulfilled fully. And the pain of these moments won't be forgotten. But they'll be bearable. And we'll live again. I'll ask Gaina, everyone to join me, I want to pray and pause for a moment. Would you stand with me? Lord, we bring our sadness, our tears to you. And we long and hope and put our trust in the moment when you wipe every tear away and we believe. And we ask you in your mercy 
to walk with us, to dwell with us, and to help us to live in you, to abide, for you to abide with us and us to abide with you, for us to live in closeness with you in our lives. We walk this broken world, but we ask you to abide with us.